So, last week, within about 10 minutes of sitting down after finishing my sermon, I fell into this uh, terrible blue funk, which kind of lasted until Tuesday when the crew prayed for me. And here's the reason I'll tell you why I fell into that funk. Is that you might remember hopefully you'll remember, that last week we were talking about the Holy Spirit. And I said, quoted Gordon Fee, one of his students had said, that the God, the Father, I can't have a grip on, that Jesus I know, but the Holy Spirit is this great oblong blur. And we talked about who the Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is all about. But here's what I think I didn't communicate, which I was in despair that I didn't communicate it adequately and display it, and it's this. Is that one of the main realities of life in the Holy Spirit is this incredible, fulfilling, even thrilling joy. I don't think I portrayed that at all. And yet, and yet if you read in the New Testament, the, the, the Holy Spirit is central to our experience of joy. So towards the end of the week, Dave sauntered down to my office and said to me, So, are you going to redeem yourself this week? but the joy of the Holy Spirit. I said, I don't know if I'm going to redeem myself or not. But what I do know is that I was studying for the passage this week, and my New Testament professor, Buford Bryant, you know he's a great guy with the first name of Buford, hey? You know, it's just a great... Buford, in his commentary, he said this about the passage that we're going to spend some time in today. This is what he said, Buford Bryant. He wrote this. We should not leave this section. That's the last half of the chapter, okay? We should not leave this section without realizing that there is an intended connection between these promises, the ones we're going to look at, and the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is often associated with joy in the New Testament. And then he lists a whole bunch of scriptures that connect the Holy Spirit and a life of joy, the life of vibrant joy that God wants for us and desires for us and in which we can live. goes on. His presence, that is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of the believer consummates, brings together, brings to completion, fulfills, makes absolute, whatever word you want to use there, the life of the, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer consummates the joyous restoration of this person to the Father. It's the Holy Spirit who brings all of these promises of God to the life of the believer. He's the one that makes the truths that we celebrate and sing about and meditate on. He's the one, the spirit, that makes that real in our lives. Now, in the passage we're going to look at today, there's like the whole breadth of human emotion in here. I mean, you'll see them. The whole thing is there. There's, um, there's uh, um, confusion. We're going to start off with a lot of confusion and there's sorrow and mourning and grief. There's, there's anticipation. There's confidence, which actually turns out to be false confidence. There's a talking about peace, but the dominant emotion, the dominant experience of the passage as we go through this teaching of Jesus here, the dominant thing of all of these life experiences is joy. Joy. Joy lies at the center of what Jesus is teaching as he lays out what it means that after the Spirit has come, how he makes what he makes real in our lives. And he grounds that joy in three things. The first is the reality of resurrection. The reality of resurrection. The second is this incredible, joyous, love-filled intimacy with God the Father. Intimacy with God the Father. 
And, and sort of the third grounding of the joy that he has is the reality of the certain and ultimate victory that we have in Christ. Three things, three groundings, all boiling up as the Spirit applies into our life to a life of joy that we can experience and live. So let's dig into it. John chapter 16, we'll begin with verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you'll see me no more. And then, after a little while, then you'll see me. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and, and then after a little while you'll see me, and, and because I'm going to the Father? And they just kept on asking, this confusion. They kept on asking, what does he mean by in a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, hey, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me? And then you will see me no more, and after a little while you will see me. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and you'll mourn while the world rejoices. You'll grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that the child is born into the world. And so it is with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will be able to take away that joy. In a while, says Jesus, you won't see me, but then there'll be soon, there's going to be a sight for sore eyes. Your eyes are going to be sore with weeping with grief, but then you're going to see something that is going to be absolutely joyous. Now, did you notice as we read those verses that there's a dominant theme Something that's repeated again and again and again. And it's this little phrase, in a little while. In a micron is what the word we get of it. In just a little while. It's used seven times in these four verses. Now what's, what's Jesus doing here? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's trying to impress upon his disciples and probably trying to impress upon us some sense of, of urgency. What he's trying to get them to understand is that the hinge of history and the meaning of all of life and all of the universe, that meaning is about to change and it's about to happen. It's about to all come together and you're yawning during it. We're just kind of going through life and, okay, so we're going to get ready for supper now. It sounds like me. And Jesus is trying to say, listen, you need to understand something. In just a little while, in just a micron, before you can blink, everything in the whole universe, all of history is about to change. You've got to catch on to that. And they needed to get cranked up about it. And to tell you the truth, sometimes I need cranking up about it too. I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I think about God becoming flesh and growing up and doing miracles and dying on a cross and being laid on the tomb and resurrected and ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God and one day returning, I, I kind of, it, it just sort of becomes like water off a duck's back after a while. And I need to sort of take seriously this urgency that Jesus, no, 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 this isn't just something we yawn about. This isn't something that we should just go through the motions of life about. This is something that changes everything in life and everything in history. In just a little while, says Jesus, everything has changed. And we live in that changed time. So he cranks it up. And then he says, what's going to happen in a little while? In a little while, you'll see me no more. And then in another little while, 
you'll see me again. Now, he, John uses two different words for the word for see here. Okay? Now, I don't want to make too much of this because they fundamentally mean the same thing. But the Apostle John, he, he does a little bit of nuance, a little bit of change in the two words that he uses for see. The first word is kind of like the general word for see means to, to observe something. To just sort of know something, you know, to just sort of go through in, in regular life and to see something. You're driving down the highway in the car, you see a tree, you see a mountain. It might be great, might be good, might be something boring, but you just sort of see something. Now, the second word he uses is a different word. And the Apostle John, in particular, uses this word to sort of describe spiritual insight. Okay, don't make too big of a deal of it, but there's a, there's a bit of a nuance here. And if you look at John's use of this second word, he mostly uses it about Jesus before, you know, when he's, um, before he comes flesh and, and then after the resurrection. And what Jesus is kind of saying is that, listen, uh, in a little while, you're not going to be seeing me like you see me now. In a little while, I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to be laid in a tomb. And you're not going to see me for a while. But then what's going to happen is I'm going to rise from the dead. And you're going to see me like you have never seen me before. You're going to see me and understand me in a completely different way. You're going to see and you are going to understand that I am the resurrected death conqueror. I'm the one that's going to put a seal on the end of the enemy's ultimate weapon, which is death. I'm going to conquer death. And a little while, you're not going to see me because you're going to think that I'm dead and it's going to look like the bad guys won. But after a little while, your eyes are going to be opened in a completely new way and you will see me for who I actually am, the giver and the sustainer of all life, the Savior and Lord of the world. No wonder these disciples were a little bit confused. Because how could they have seen Jesus as that before he actually did that? But then when they see him risen from the grave, then they see him differently. As a matter of fact, the next time that the John puts together this idea of seeing and joy is in chapter 20. When John writes this after the resurrection. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked, why? For fear of the Jewish leaders. They didn't want to die either. Fear of the Jewish leaders. They were terrified. Locked the doors. Hunker down. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom. Peace be with you. May all be well with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Suddenly they see him as somebody different. And Jesus goes on to explain what is about to happen. And he says, listen, what's going to happen? It's this joyous, certain, guaranteed act of God. And the way in which he does that is he gives this illustration of a woman in labor and then giving birth. Now, 
sounds to our ears maybe like a little bit, bit of a funny uh, illustration to use, but, but, but he's doing something very particular here. In the first place, what he's doing is that he is, he's giving an interpretive framework for everything that's going on. You see, in the Old Testament, this image of a woman giving birth in the midst of difficulty and travail and then good stuff happening, it's an image that's, that's used actually quite often. And it's used to guarantee this. It's used when God says, right now you're having a very, very difficult time. But I'm going to act. I'm going to bring salvation. I'm going to deliver the nation. And there will be life after this. I am going to change everything. There is a guaranteed, decisive, saving action of God. That's what that imagery of a woman in labor means for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus gives this illustration to the disciples, as good Jewish boys, what clicks in their head is, okay, we need to pay attention here because Jesus is talking about some massive, huge, saving act of God. Some act of deliverance that's going to change everything around. So that's the first thing the illustration does. The second thing is Jesus is communicating something that is surely going to happen. Because you see, the idea is, and I realize that there are this terrible tragedies and death and so on, miscarriages, this sort of thing. But, but what he's saying is that there's an order of things. You get pregnant. The child grows. You go through what looks like an agonizing procedure. And then there's a child born. A new life is brought into the world. And it's like the sun rising. It just happens. And what he's doing with this figure is he's saying that, listen, you need to understand this is a guaranteed sure thing. This isn't going to be this, this saving act of God. It's not just something that might happen. It might just not be a chance thing. No, no, no. This is the ordered way of creation that God has planned from the beginning of time. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And death will be conquered. And life will be victorious for all people, for all time, who come to saving me. And the third thing he wants us to understand with this illustration of labor and childbirth is that everything's going to change. Those of us who have had children, we know everything changes. Everything changes for the rest of your life. Your priorities change, the way in which you think about the world change, what you're afraid of change, how you spend your money changes, how you spend your time changes. Everything changes with the birth of a child. And Jesus is trying to say to us, listen, you need to understand something, that, that this act that's going to happen is going to be so momentous, every single aspect of your life is going to be different until the end of time. And then beyond the end of time. Because at the end of time, I'm going to come back and bring all things to absolute completion. Everything is going to be different because of the resurrection of Christ. And it's in that realization that your mourning will turn to joy. You know, one of the guys I was reading, I can't remember which one it was. I should have written down so I'd give credit, but it wasn't my idea. But he said this. Do you notice that it doesn't say your mourning will be replaced by joy? It says your mourning will be turned to joy. What's the difference? 
The difference is that when mourning is replaced by joy, what was giving you mourning is taken away and something new is put in its place, right? But Jesus doesn't say that. What he's saying is that the very thing which is causing you to mourn, the very thing which is causing you great sorrow, the very thing which is going to make you think that everything is lost and defeated, that very thing which causes you to mourn will actually be the thing which gives you the greatest joy because that death means that your sin is forgiven and that resurrection means that you have conquered death in me for all eternity. And the very thing you mourn becomes the source of our joy. Because that was God's plan from the beginning. The saving act, which was as sure as a birth after a pregnancy. Joy, because death is defeated. And not just because of Jesus, but for every believer. You know, I've mentioned it a couple of times because it's, you know, it's a profound thing in our life. But Sheena's dad, Roy, his body gave up on him last month in, in January. And I'll tell you, the last year, man, it was rough. Because we just watched this man whom we love, who loves Jesus and loves people, and just being stripped away of everything that we kind of feel like makes a person human. It was just kind of stripped away and... His, his, his gentleness was kind of there and sometimes not there. Uh, um, his, his hearing went completely. He stopped talking. He shriveled into a skeleton with skin on it. And uh, lots and lots of times he, he just wouldn't even speak. Except when we prayed. And somehow he... And we were privileged to be there when he died. That last sharp breath. And I, I don't think I'm projecting back. I think I, I remember looking at this tiny, tiny shell. And thinking, the next time I see you, We'll be in a glorious, resurrected body. And everything that has been stripped away will not only be made restored, but will be made glorious. And our mourning is turned to joy because of the resurrection. And Jesus is the resurrected death conqueror. And in the hardest things we face in life, the life of those we love are in our own death, we have joy because of Jesus and resurrection. But it doesn't end there. Jesus said there's, there's a second reason for joy. And that's because joy because of just this, this incredible intimacy with the Father. Let's pick it up in verse 23. In that day, you no longer ask me anything. 
Very truly, I will tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, the time is coming and I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. And in that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not, ask, I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf, which is kind of how I most of the time think about it. No, no, no. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me. And I believe that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. And now I'm leaving the world and I'm going back to the Father. It's this whole passage that we ask in Jesus' name, which we do all the time in prayer. Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, at first reading, it sounds like a whole pile of doublespeak. You know, asking my name, but I'm not asking my name. You're not going to ask, but then you will. And, and then ask, you know, asking my name and the Father will give it you. But I'm not saying, you know, the Father isn't doing it. It just gets very confusing. So let me see if I can. Maybe you're not as confused as I am. You weren't until I just said that. But let, let's just kind of walk through this a little bit and see what's this whole deal that Jesus is talking about, which, which ultimately is this intimacy of the Father. The whole thing about asking in Jesus' name. Well, just like he uses two words for see, he uses two different words for ask here. John, when he penned it under the inspiration of the Spirit, uses two different words for ask. The first word for ask means to just simply ask a question, like they were doing. Okay, we'll ask you, Jesus, what do you mean in a little while you'll see us, we won't see you, and then we'll see you. It's just, it just plainly means to, to ask for a, a question. But the other word for ask, it means a petition. It means a request. And what Jesus is saying is that, listen, the time's coming when you're not, you know, you're not going to be asking just me questions anymore because you're going to see who I'm something different. And now instead, you're going to put your request, you're going to put your prayers to the Father in my name. In my name. And he said, now you've never before, you, you don't petition in my name. You don't go to, the, to God, to Yahweh as a good Jewish boy. You don't go and say, Yahweh, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm asking that in Jesus' name. Why? Because you know that you ask God. And, and this is... This, this is a subtle hint on Jesus' part of a bit of a claim of divinity that requests, prayer requests, would be given in his name. This is going to be something new. Well, what does it mean to ask in his name? He says, listen, if you ask in my name, Whatever you ask, that's going to be given for you. That's a powerful thing to ask in Jesus' name. Now, have you noticed, we've talked about this several times, because in this last discourse here, this great teaching, as you head in towards this, uh, in chapter 13, there's this promise all the time that Jesus several times says, hey, if you just ask in my name, you know, asking God's going to give you, asking God's going to give you, asking God's going to give you. And it's easy for us to think about that as a blank check. But remember what we've said. What he's saying is to ask in my name. What does it mean to ask in the name? Well, remember in the Bible, the name sort of meant the whole person. The name has to do with his character, his plan, and his mission. 
And so to ask in Jesus' name is to, say, is to do this. Jesus is saying, listen, when you ask something according to my character, according to who I am, then the Father grants that request. When you ask something according to my plan for what's going on in this situation, when you join me in asking in whatever difficult circumstance we're in or whatever pleasant circumstance you're in or whatever it is that you fear, when you ask in my name, Jesus I want you to show me your plan in this. I've got my plans and I've got my desires and I know how I want to do it. But what I want to ask Jesus and God Almighty is, is that your plan take place in my life, in this circumstance, in this future. I ask according to your plan. And what is your plan? Your plan is the mission. The mission of reconciling all of creation to God the Father through the person of Jesus the Christ. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you need to understand something. Something new is going to happen. Now all of your prayers are going to be according to my character and my plan and my mission. And when you pray those prayers and when you live into those realities, God the Father will answer your prayers. And he will answer your prayers because he loves you. I haven't quoted Tom Wright for a while, so let me lay this on you. Tom Wright says that this entire portion of Scripture is really all about the great love of the Father. I would not have got that, and, but he's smarter than I am, so I guess that's right. He said, don't, don't miss this in here. Jesus wants to point it to the love of the Father. There's a whole pile of stuff going on, but it's, it's easy for you to skip over the love of the Father because this is about me and it's about hope and all the joy. But don't miss the love of the Father. He says that, right? Verse 26 and stuff. In that day, you'll ask in my name. Okay. Hey, but I am not saying, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. This was a shocking thing to me because that's always how I imagine it. No, no, no. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. You know how frustrating it is to try and get to somebody that can make a difference? We've all had those experiences, right? Especially dealing with institutions. You've heard me whine many times. It took me a year and a half dealing with my dad's pension outfit in England to get his pension stuff straightened out for my mum. And it was not a pleasant experience. I don't know how many emails I sent, but what was worse is that England's seven hours ahead of us, so it's like 3.30 in the morning. I'm on the phone so I don't get bumped at the end. Not a pleasant experience. And, you know, trying to get to somebody that could just... Look, it's one number... Now we're kind of going through the same thing with, with Sheena's dad. And the insurance for more than a year. Are you... We're trying to work with manual life, trying to get an answer. How does this work? Because this doesn't seem right to us. No answer, no answer. Now, he's dead, and he's got two, two different insurances. One paid out, one didn't. It's still screwed up. Trying to get somebody. Can we talk? Who's going to make that? Who's going to do it? At least some of these institutions have a sense of humor about this stuff. As frustrating as it is. Do you remember a few years ago when you phoned WestJet and you were on hold? And... and it's pretty soon, you know, there's music or whatever they do. And then they come on. I remember this. I distinctly remember this. If you've been on hold for the longer than 10 minutes, press three. And as I'm about to press three, it goes on and says, it won't make any difference, but you might feel better. <laughs> it's, what a frustrating thing. 
trying to get through to somebody that can actually make a difference. And Jesus is saying, listen, I don't want you to misunderstand something here. I don't want you to think that you have to ask in my name because God doesn't really, God the Father doesn't really care about you and so you have to ask me because you know that I love you because I died for you and then I'm going to whisper in the Father's ear and then he's going to hear your prayer and then he's going to answer not because he loves you but because he loves me and he's doing me a favor. Jesus says you need to understand something, that's not how this works. God Almighty, God the Father answers your prayers because he loves you. You. He loves you. The point is God's favorable disposition towards towards you. The point is that you are intimate with God Almighty, creator and sustainer of the universe, that he cares for you. And there is no need for some intermediary. There's no need for other animal sacrifices there's no need for this temple because you are the temple of the holy spirit as we saw god loves you well that sounds good but hang on a minute jones you're fluffing it here because what i see it says is verse 27 look at that no the father himself loves you because oh 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 because Is this like something conditional here? No, the Father himself loves you because you loved me and have believed that I come from God. What's this loving me because I love Jesus? Is God's love conditional? Does does this mean that God doesn't love people, our kids and our siblings and our parents and our friends, that God doesn't love those that, that don't follow Jesus? Are they outside of the love of God? How does this work? I mean, I thought, John, at the very beginning of the book, you said, for God so loved the world. And what's the world in John? We've seen it before again and again and again. The world is anything and anyone that is in opposition to God. For God so loved those who are in opposition to him that he sent his son. How come all of a sudden there's this conditional thing thrown in here? That the father loves you because you love and loved and believed in me. Okay. It took me a little while to get my head around. But I think I've got it. So let me see if I can lay it out. Think about the circle of the Trinity of God's love. I will now stun you with my artistic ability. Think about the Trinity, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? So you kind of got, okay, here, you know, you've got God the Father. That's good. And, and God the Father loves God the Son. And God the Son loves God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit loves God the Father. And they all love each other. This is, this is and, and the love of these three persons is so intense and so complete and so absolute that they indwell each other and become one and are one. I shouldn't say become one, they always were one. It, it's so hard to talk about the Trinity, isn't it? This weird, no matter what you say, you got it wrong. 
But you got this, it's this, there's these three persons bound into one God, right? You got, you with me? Trinity, right? Love, this is love, okay? Love, love, E, love, okay? Here's what happens. God so loved the world. Here's North America and South America. Pretty good, eh? God so loved the world. But there's this barrier called sin. So God the Father sent the Son into the world. And then the Son returned to the Father. And here's what happened. When we are in the Son... We are drawn up into the intimate love of the Trinity itself with no boundaries. We're not God. I'm not saying that we're God. But this is why the Apostle Paul, this language of being in Christ is so important. In Christ, we are drawn up into the most intimate relationship that exists in all of the universe. God loves the world, but the fullness, the fullness of God's love for you can only be experienced and appreciated when we are in Christ. Only when the Holy Spirit draws us up into Christ and draws us up into this divine love match then, all of a sudden, the, the, the intensity, the, the purity, the, I, I don't even know what the words are, of God the Father's love for us can become real to us as we live this experience out, as the Holy Spirit allows our heart to experience these things. God's love is infinite, and we experience it in its fullness when we're drawn into the, Father, into the Son. And when we are here, we have direct access to the Father. And we don't have to whisper to the Son who whispers to the Father because the Father doesn't really love us. We love the Father and the Father loves us. And this is what Jesus is trying to explain. He's trying to get us to grasp something which I can't grasp. And so we need the Holy Spirit to fill up our heart and to fill up our life and to fill up our mind so that we can in some, in some meager sense at least taste of what Jesus is talking about here. The intimacy of the Father. This is joy. This is joy. When you, by the work of the Holy Spirit, experience what it is to be drawn up into the Son and into this divine circle of intimacy and love. That's joy today. That's joy right now. That's the joy of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives because of Jesus. And he said, but I'm not done yet. But don't worry, this one's not as long. There's one other reason for joy. It's because of the ultimate victory. Verse 29. Then Jesus' disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. 
Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you a question, which, by the way, is the quality of God in the Old Testament. Anyway, this makes us believe that you came from God. Or do you believe now? Jesus replied. The time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each of you, to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Oh, now you believe, says Jesus? And it's not so much that he doubts that they have any belief. It's that Jesus knows that their belief is incomplete. They can't believe yet. They can't understand yet because the resurrection hasn't yet happened. And so he says, listen, I know you think that you believe, but you haven't got the belief yet that's going to take you through persecution because you don't yet understand who I am. I'm sure you're going to abandon me. But don't worry, because I'm never alone. My Father is always with me. And as we are in Christ, you are never alone. Feels that way sometimes. Feels like sometimes even the people that love us the most, they don't get us, they don't understand us, we can't communicate it, we can't get it across, we, 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 we lose it, we get afraid. But the Father never leaves us alone. Never. Never leaves us alone. And it's because of this we have the sense that the victory of the battles that you're in are already won. I love how Sarah Rudin translates this, this verse. She says this. In the world, you will have grinding suffering. But be brave. I've conquered the world. I like that because it captures what is sometimes your experience, isn't it? Sometimes in, in the stuff of life, the things that we go through, it's a grind. And sometimes it's a grinding suffering that feels like it's going to wear us down and we're just not sure we can get up in the morning because we're, we're weak and we've, we, we kind of lose hope and, and we just we don't know we can do it again and again and again. It's grinding. But Jesus says, listen, be brave. Be brave. Put your feet on the floor. Get out of bed. Hit the shower. Brush your teeth. Go back into those relationships. Because you can approach that with victory. Because I understand it's a grind, says Jesus. But never forget, never forget, never forget, never forget, never forget your intimacy with the Father. That he hears your prayers. Never forget that death has been conquered. And all of these little victories that Jesus had on those signs that he did before of all of the little miracles and the raising of Lazarus, they're just all the proclamation that the victory is already won. And Jesus invites us, be brave. Don't lose heart. Be courageous in the face of difficulty. 
because I have overcome the world. And in the end, all that shatters you, all that grinds you down, all that steals your joy will be taken away and we will live in the glorious new creation. And for as much as the Holy Spirit can come into our lives, he can carry us and enable us to live in that new creation reality. In his strength and in his love and in his grace and in his way. And it's because of that that when things get hard and when we have this grinding suffering that we can carry on the fight even with joy because the Holy Spirit reminds us that Jesus is the conqueror of death because we are living in the divine circle of intimate love and that's where our whole life is lived and God the Father, creator of the world, hears our prayers and loves us. And because in the end, Christ is victorious. He is the conqueror. And in him, we are more than conquerors too. In him, we have the victory. Amen.